0: Welcome to Act In Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts, producer and also an occasional host. On this episode, I'm first happy to bring you a conversation about the Equality Act, a bill recently passed by Congress that prohibits discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. But the bill would create more problems than solve, bringing with it inequality and threats to religious liberty. In the second segment of this episode, we take a look at the supposedly utopian system in Sweden and speak with a newly elected Swedish member of the European Parliament, Charlie Weimers, who reveals the reality of censorship in Sweden. If you want to read more about the topics in this episode and check out any of the articles that I'll be referencing, you can go to our show notes, which I publish every Wednesday when our episodes release at blog.acton.org. Also, last but not least, don't forget to swing over to our website at actinorg line and subscribe to this podcast. We're available on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, or wherever you listen. A few weeks ago, Congress voted to pass the Equality Act to ban discrimination against LGBT people in workplaces, public accommodations, and housing. But the bill is more than it appears on the surface. In the name of banning discrimination and furthering so-called equality, it would threaten women's rights, freedom to speech, and religious freedom. To help me break down just how dangerous the Equality Act is, Keisha Russell, associate counsel to First Liberty Institute, a nonprofit law firm dedicated to defending religious freedom, joins me on the podcast. Keisha, thank you for joining me on Act In Line. Thank you so much for having me, Carolyn. So this Equality Act, or HR5 now, it creates a new protected class of people based on sexual orientation and gender identity. And it's enacted, of course, at the federal level. Um, we know that there are already a number of states, 21 to be exact, actually, that have non-discrimination laws protecting LGBT people. These states are penalizing business owners for their beliefs about marriage and gender. What are some examples of this that you've seen? Um, yeah,
1: so our clients, Aaron and Melissa Klein, um, in Oregon were penalized for their religious convictions. They're cake bakers, and they were unable to bake a cake, uh, due to their religious beliefs and because of the state's non-discrimination laws, they find that um, business $135,000, um, and they were forced to close. Right now, we have a petition pending um, with the Supreme Court uh, to review that decision. But that's just that's one example. There, there are a number of others. I think that you can find, you know, uh, Jack Phillips' case. Um, and Colorado, of course, is, is a pretty popular example of those state non-discrimination laws really uh, influencing Christian businesses. But a very parallel situation to Aaron and Melissa Klein, um, a cake baker who said he could not participate build, uh, or, and build uh, and create a custom cake uh, for a wedding that violated his religious beliefs. And he was treated uh, pretty host- with some pretty uh, outright hostility by Colorado. And I think the Supreme Court, you know, made it very clear that, you know, people still have religious rights in this country.
0: So I just want to highlight how broad this bill is, because even though those laws that you were just referencing are being enacted at the state level, um, they're still extremely dangerous. So it's, I think right now, a little hard to comprehend just how much more dangerous it would be at the federal level, Um, because the Equality Act, the bill says that it would protect LGBT individuals in, quote, public accommodations, including bathrooms, healthcare facilities, adoption and foster care providers, and broadly youth service providers. Um, So say a foster care provider or adoption agency only wanted to place children in homes with a mother and father, um, even on religious grounds, those agencies would be penalized, um, either slapped with a very big fine or maybe even have their doors closed. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, that is correct. And as a matter of fact, if you look at states like Massachusetts, um, uh, California, they've had um, faith-based adoption agencies that have been working in those states for 100 years. Catholic Charities um, had to close in those states. Uh, San Francisco, I believe, was the city in California, and then in, Bo- in um, Massachusetts, it was in Boston. But these are entities that have been serving the community in adoption and foster care before even the government was providing those services, Um both of those entities had been around for a hundred years, and because of those non-discrimination laws, um, and because you know it was a complete violation of the religious beliefs of those agencies to place children with any other couples that were not a married mother and father,
0: they were forced to close. If I'm interpreting this correctly, then the Equality Act would uh, basically denying provisions made in the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Can you explain that a bit for me? Like how, how does the sure. Religious Freedom Restoration Act play a, a, play a part in this conversation?
1: Great. So that's, that's a great question. So first I want to just sort of explain that, um, like you said, it seeks to expand, you know, the, the classes protected by the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Um, it also uh, broadens the public accommodation definition. So like you said, it includes foster and adoption care and all of that, but also um, uses the word gatherings to cover gatherings and, a lot of times um, facilities that are historically owned by religious organizations and churches. So like shelters and food banks and things like that. Um, uh, So it it broadly expands that definition. And then, uh, and then it explicitly refers to the religious freedom restoration act and says that you cannot use that federal law as a defense whenever the equality act is being used to enforce, uh, you know, non-discrimination for some reason. So essentially what it seeks to do is repeal, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act on the federal level without actually seeking a repeal of that act.
0: So this bill is on its way to the Senate to be voted on, and it likely won't be passed. But what does the future of this bill look like?
1: Well, um, as you it passed the House, um, and it's been presented to the Senate um, as of, you know, the end of, I believe, May. Um, But at this point, it's not expected to pass the Senate, um, mostly because, you know, there's still you know, a pretty large majority of people who support RFRA, um, particularly the Republicans, of course, but it's not expected to get the support necessary to actually become law. Um, but the thing that people really need to pay attention to is, you know, that could change at any time once the Democrats c- control um, both the House and the Senate um, and possibly the White House. So it's something to really pay attention to, um, because if this were to pass, that would be a very huge blow to religious liberty in America.
0: Yeah. And I I believe that this bill, we're probably going to continue seeing it be attempted to be passed, um, at least throughout our kids' generations, until it is. Is that safe to say?
1: Yeah, I think it is safe to say. I don't think that... Um, the Democrats will stop anytime soon trying to pass mm-hmm. the bill. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's safe to say that they will keep trying.
0: Thomas Barr, who is the president at the Religious Freedom Institute, said it well in a piece for a Real Clear Policy. Um, he wrote that, quote, The Equality Act will harm American democracy by privileging one view of sexuality and human nature and silencing another. I mean, ultimately, this bill is defining dissent of thought as discrimination. It's a complete rehashing of terms throughout the whole entire bill.
1: Right. And I, I definitely agree. I think it definitely refer- refers to the belief that marriage is between a man and a woman as, you know, quote unquote, a sex stereotype. Um, when we know that there are many, many Americans who have a sincerely held religious belief that that is you know, what marriage is um, and trying to define that in such a way that uh, would eliminate a religious dissenter's right to believe that and act in accordance with that belief, I think is extremely dangerous um, on a lot of levels. It's like you were saying, faith-based adoption agencies and all kinds of uh, churches and um, one of the other, you know, uh, areas that could be possibly affected by this is uh, schools, even religious schools if you begin to say that they are not exempt, um, from certain, you know, uh, uh, religious, usual, usual religious accommodations as it relates to say bathrooms and restrooms and locker rooms and, um, those kinds of things, um, then you're, you're looking at a huge change there, uh, and, and definitely a huge, uh, change in viewpoint in terms of whether that's a valid, uh, religious belief as opposed to just being a stereotype that, um, Deserves no protection.
0: If this bill were passed, or I should say, unfortunately, when it is passed, perhaps, what are some likely scenarios we would see in religious institutions that refuse to affirm government sanctioned definitions of sexuality and gender?
1: Well, I mean, you're you're going to see many of those longstanding service providers, your your shelters and things like that. Those those entities that are owned by churches, many of them are going to close rather than violate their religious beliefs. Um, you're definitely going to see a lot of litigation, and though you know the the Equality Act would repeal referral, you're still going to have your constitutional defenses, and that means you know case law like Masterpiece um, would still you know be um, valid and you know something you could use as a defense in some cases, but it would make it, uh, you know, very diff- difficult. I think um, to challenge, you know, this this law in court, you know, especially if if you're going to use, you know, wanting to use what would typically be a refer defense.
0: What would your last words about this bill be? What do you think is most important to understand?
1: Well, I think um, if the you know the purpose um in any cases to build equality or to eliminate discrimination and i think if that is the case i don't think you we can do that by elevating one group of people over another i think once you've elevated one group of uh, people over another then you, you've you've gone into the realm of bias um and i think there is you know some a way to balance um you know these these like new secular views Um, with the old religious views, but I don't think the Equality Act is it. And I do think that it's really important for all of us to understand, you know, how important freedom of conscience really is, um, and that it it extends beyond, um, you know, social norms. Um, And it's something that we should protect because everyone has their own beliefs, everyone has beliefs of conscience, and, you know, religious liberty doesn't just protect You know people who have traditional religious views they protect the minority views and your own you know people who have conscience uh beliefs that you you may not be able to categorize into like a normal you know traditional uh judeo-christian viewpoint or something and all of those people benefit from having religious protection everyone you know benefits from it and so it's just really important that we understand um that getting rid of religious uh freedom is not the way To enhance equality in this
0: country. Keisha, thank you so much for joining me on the show.
1: You're welcome. I really appreciate being on.
0: Every year in June, Acton University brings together nearly 1,000 people in Grand Rapids, Michigan, to explore the foundations of a free society. In this year, we're excited to be opening registration for each evening's dinner and plenary session. For those who can't attend the full conference, join us on the evening of June 18 to hear Mary Ann Kalam, a politician in Estonia, speak firsthand about her witness of Soviet-occupied Estonia and her work to champion freedom after the fall of the Iron Curtain. Save your spot at this event before seats fill up and register at acton.org slash events.
2: This is Trey Dimsdale, the Director of Program Outreach at the Acton Institute. I'm joined today on um, our podcast, Acton Line, with uh, Charlie Weimers, who is a, a newly elected member of the European Parliament from Sweden and also an Acton alum who attended uh, Acton University and has also uh, cooperated with us uh uh, on a few things that we've done uh, in Europe, Charlie, thanks for joining us this morning.
3: Thanks for having me, Trey.
2: And congratulations uh, on that election. I'm sure you're exhausted. It was just this past weekend. And so I understand this is your your first American interview, and I am honored that you would uh, you would join us here on our podcast uh, for that occasion. So Charlie, um, your your campaign slogan. Uh, during the during the uh, the weeks leading up to the election, was more Sweden, less Brussels. Could you tell us a little bit about what what you mean by that that phrase?
3: I think that a lot of Americans can uh, sort of figure out what we mean with less Brussels. Uh, Brussels is very much like Washington. It's uh, over-regulating. It's trying to tax. Uh, Europeans, um, they have failed so far because of the natural vetoes uh, on tax policy, but uh, they are trying to uh, move as much power, political power, different areas from uh, the member states uh, to the bureaucracy here in Brussels, and uh, we don't agree with that. We don't agree with the, the big European parties here in Brussels going together to form a sort of grand coalition between socialists, center right people, liberals, uh, in favor of a, an ever closer union. Uh, we want we want European cooperation, but based on intergovernmentalism instead of um, supranationalism. This is the big, big uh, issue at stake in Europe, in European politics, and. Uh, uh, a lot of Swedes uh, really found that um, message um, uh, attractive. So, so we went up from, from uh, two to uh, three seats out of Sweden's 20 seats, so 15%, which uh, we are very uh, happy about.
2: I'd like to pivot a bit, Charlie, uh, to talk about a new book that's come out that you were kind enough to write a review for us. Uh, it's called Sweden's Dark Soul, The Unraveling of a Utopia uh, by uh, Swedish journalist uh, Kaisa Norman. Uh, it came out from Hearst Publishers, I guess, in Europe um, back at the end of 2018, but it's just recently been released in the United States. And uh, so we um, we're, we were fortunate uh, enough to, get to enlist you uh, to take a look at that for us. Um, you know, could you... Um, you know, provide a little bit of background for this book. Being somebody who's immersed in Swedish culture, uh, you could know a little bit better. Uh, you know, the the background from which this uh, this this author is writing.
3: The book is about a country that has invested so much in presenting my country as this uh, very peaceful, liberal. Post-national utopia, and uh, at any instance, another image has come out from Sweden uh, for an international audience. The, the political leadership has been very quick to denounce any attempt to to sort of black paint Sweden internationally. It's 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 really uh, a big issue. For the media, for politicians, uh, the image of Sweden. Uh, so, so Kaisa Norman is an expat. She has written a lot of many interesting books. One about South Africa, and the the um, as well as about uh, Venezuela. Uh, and she often writes her book through the lens of individuals. She starts by 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 depicting how many hundreds of, of sexual violations took place during a, a festival in Stockholm called we are Stockholm in in 2015 um, and uh, the, the, the whole situation was very much like what happened in Cologne uh, I think it was the same year New Year's Eve uh, but what we saw in conjunction to these sexual violations who were um, who were committed by by immigrants almost every one of them uh, was that despite you know very um, well established people reporting trying to report to the media what had happened the media did not uh, go public with it the police basically uh, decided to not public, go public as well so it was uh, more or less a cover-up uh, by official sweden because of the fact that this would disturb uh the sort of harmonious picture that the uh establishment was trying to portray uh to sweet and to the rest of the world uh post the migration crisis twenty fifteen so um yeah she 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 depicts a country in a moral crisis a country that brands itself a moral superpower i 'm not joking it 's really what some politicians are, are calling us. Um, she, she does it brilliantly. Uh, she always found Sweden too boring to write about. Uh, but unfortunately, Sweden has become exciting enough to merit a book. Uh, and I recommend reading it to uh, anyone.
2: So what, what you've described here with the We Are Stockholm um, festival, now, was that a music festival or was that some sort of a cultural festival?
3: Uh, it was a music festival, so you had top artists like Sarah Larson, uh, who's very popular among teenagers, 20-year-olds, uh, and other big artists. And it was a festival which was free, uh, tax-funded, not free for taxpayers but for anyone who showed up. And you had this you know, surrounding of individual girls, and sexually harassing them in the, in the midst of the, of the audience without, you know, police or guards being able to, to spot who was the perpetrator, what was going on. Uh, it was, uh, you know, by the perpetrator, it was very thought through. And and uh, the police there were powerless. They they got some uh, perpetrators, but let them go after you know half an hour or whatever. It was a really um, bizarre situation, which is I think Im- uh, unimaginable in the United States. Uh, um, she she Kaiser Norman has lived in the United States, and she compared it to I think she lived in Arizona or something, and she said like people. You know, been up in arms it would but, have yeah. stood their ground in a way that no yeah. one did uh, in, in Stockholm uh, and, and it's quite a depressing uh, depressing review of sw- the state of Sweden of
2: today so so this title we are Stockholm is, is was this uh, was this designed to be um, a, uh, like a, a celebration of this multicultural ideal that Sweden is trying to is trying to, um, to pedal?
3: Uh, I th- I think it was basically a PR product, you know, and yeah, everyone's included and and uh and this um yeah, diversity is 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 uh, is uh, is a word that is not neutral uh neutrally used by by uh, many many Swedes, but in itself described as as uh as something positive. So so yes, I, I assume that that was part of the, the plan when they set this festival up.
2: So the fact that this never showed up really and in, in got much traction in the Swedish press, was this, you know, um, a result of unofficial political or cultural pressure or did it involve actual official censorship? And not official censorship.
3: No, uh, but unofficial censorship. Um, a lot of Swedish journalists left the principle of uh, consequence neutrality, so which means that you're reporting what you see, you do it in a, in a neutral fashion, and you do it even if consequences are bad, because it, it is the truth. You report the truth. And a lot of Swedish journalists, in cases that had with immigrants to do especially, they they um they went away from that principle they they threw it overboard when criminals are on the run and they have committed something and they happen to be from another background it's often not even mentioned that you know hair color or whatever things that could actually help the public help the police finding him uh, we also during 2015 had a an unofficial policy uh, from the the, um, National Police Headquarters that any crime um, committed by an asylum seeker would go under Code 291 so that when the the newspapers and the public uh, looked at the records, they would not see the nature of the crime, the description of the perpetrator, but only Code 291 so even even if the newspaper in this instance did not you know uh did not act under official pressure from the swedish government uh there was at the same time this code 291 which was even though it was not you know publicly expressed by the police it was a policy that went up naturally, and uh and uh it, it's only um goal was to to keep the public uh Unaware of yeah of the problems connected with uh, with our the big migration wave 2015.
2: So historically, Sweden has been a very homogeneous society, but it's uh, and it's also been a, a safe society with with relatively low crime rates and serious crime uh, seems to be somewhat rare and tends to shock um, the Swedish population when this happens. Now. We've talked about this, uh, you know, several times in, in private conversations when the uh, when the tape's not rolling, and, and it's clear n- neither one of us believe there's something inherent about these other cultures that are entering into Swedish society that that are, you know, somehow, um, you know, prone to, to committing crimes or serious crimes. But the the reality is that, that it, this is a this is a destabilizing. In, uh, force inside of a inside of a society that's that's benefited from very strong social cohesion uh, for many many generations, and so we we're we're also seeing kind of at the same time that this is happening, uh, you know, Sweden also becoming or has become one of the most secular countries in the world with the Church of Sweden um, essentially being disestablished just recently, but. With a lot of empty churches, is there any comment that you have about the way that that seems to be, if, if that's a factor in any of this, in in, in your observation?
3: The lack of a um, the lack of a joint idea about who we are is 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 partly connected to the fact that uh, uh, we we don't in the same way meet meet each other in churches anymore we we um we also uh have not have been able to take Sweden for granted we have not been in war for more than 200 years uh so patriotism is is, is not a positive word in in Sweden and uh we have this situation where where it's uh more correct as an official to question the existence of a Swedish culture than to actually claim that there is a Swedish culture. I'm not exaggerating. I'm really not exaggerating. Well, you, a, a,
2: a prime minister recently didn't, uh, I can't remember the exact quote, but one of the Swedish prime ministers in, in the last 10 years or so, has said that nothing has come out of Swedish culture but barbarism or i can't remember precisely the quote i'm sure you remember it probably outraged you at the time and still probably does
3: yeah um yeah the the origin of swedishness is barbarism it's, it's quite close to what he actually said Um uh, like spontaneous translation on my side um and his social he was the so-called conservative prime minister, of course, not being conservative in any real sense, but uh, on paper he was. Uh, And he was then um, in an election challenged by a social democratic party leader, uh, Mona Salin who who, uh, was quoted once uh, telling the Turkish Youth Association of Sweden that, yeah, you guys have a real culture. We... uh, we Swedes, we only have a mid a midsummer celebration and other other weird stuff or uh, lame stuff, lame stuff. Uh, so that was her view on Swedish culture. And uh, last year, when UNESCO asked countries whether they wanted to uh, send something in uh, for you know getting an official World Heritage stamp. The Swedish government said that you know we don't have any uh, specifically Swedish, so we abstain from from sending anything in from from our country. And today, this is like a normal day in
2: Sweden. Wow, wow, well, Charlie, our uh, our our time is up, um, and I I can't tell you how uh, how glad I am. Um, to see that you've, uh, that your, your people have elected you uh, to the European Parliament, um, we're quite pleased here at Acton to have gotten the news over the weekend, uh, and it's been a true honor uh, to be able to, uh, for us to be the home of your very first American interview. Um, the book that we mentioned is Sweden's Dark Soul, The Unraveling of a Utopia by Kaisa Norman uh, from Hearst Publishings. It's available um, here in the U.S. just this month. Uh, We we would uh, recommend that you take a look at the the review that Charlie wrote for us. It'll be running at the same time that you're, you're hearing this podcast. Charlie, thanks so much. Congratulations again. Thank you very much, Trey.
3: Thank you for
0: listening today. If you have any feedback about this podcast, I would love to hear it. Every week, our podcast team is working to bring you the best show, and we couldn't do it without you. Let me know what you think about this podcast and email me at actinline at actin.org. This episode of Act in Line was produced and edited by me, Caroline Roberts, with audio mixing by Doug Nagel.